Welcome to Come Follow Me, Deep Dive. This podcast takes a chapter-by-chapter approach to the scriptures that are assigned by the Come Follow Me curriculum of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. My name is Barry Hillam, and I hope that this podcast will be a benefit to you. Please consider sharing it with family and friends and submitting a review on iTunes. In each episode, you will hear introductory remarks, a short flyover summary of the scriptural chapter in question, followed by a verse-by-verse reading that is supplemented with commentary from parallel passages of scripture and from modern-day prophets. You might consider adjusting the playback speed in your favorite podcast player. With that, I'm glad you're with me. Let's get started. Ether, chapter 11. Well, this is the final chapter that unpacks the genealogy that was given in verses 6 through 32 of Ether, chapter 1. That genealogy began, of course, with Ether, who was listed there as a descendant of Coriantor. However, at the end of this chapter, we'll discover that Ether was actually the son of Coriantor. The final verse, verse 23, will tell us that Coriantor begat Ether. So while Ether was the first character to be mentioned in that genealogy in Ether chapter 1, he is the final character in this kingly succession that began with King Orihah, the son of Jared, who we were introduced to at the end of Ether chapter 6. So this chapter, Ether chapter 11, will follow the same pattern as its immediate predecessors, taking us from one king to the next across eight generations, beginning with Kam, who was mentioned at the end of the previous chapter, and ending with Ether. This might sound somewhat confusing since we don't know of Ether as a king. We know that Ether instead is a prophet. But what we can see at the end of this chapter is that Ether was indeed a direct descendant of this kingly line. However, Ether's father, Coriantor, uh, ruled in captivity. This, of course, put Ether in the same circumstance. I think it's also possible that Ether was not the firstborn, so perhaps he wasn't literally in line for the throne. In any event, the final chapters of the book of Ether, spanning from 12 through 15, will follow uh, Ether's prophetic ministry. The kingship will be assumed by a different family line from this point forward, and we will be introduced to Coriantumr, presumably a descendant of the person that brought King Moron into captivity which we will read of in verse 18 of this chapter. So we'll have much to learn about Ether and this King Coriantumr in chapters to come. For this chapter, Ether chapter 11, however, the quickened pace established by previous chapters will continue, as each character in this final eight generations of kingly succession is given no more than a few verses apiece. With this faster pace and this higher level overview in Ether chapter 11, which again is the final chapter in the book of Ether that does this before the pace slows and the story finishes with Ether's generation, we are given one final opportunity to see the pattern that the people follow as they vacillate between righteousness and prosperity, which we will see at the beginning of this chapter under the righteous leadership of Calm, and wickedness and misery and depravity which we will see under the leadership of most of Kham's successors. Ogden and Skinner have written the following about the way in which this cycle manifests one final time in the book of uh, Ether chapter 11. They say Ether chapter 11 describes the final stages of the Jaredite cycle of apostasy. The people had earlier rejected, mocked, and reviled the prophets, 
Though King Shul had passed a law protecting prophets and punishing persecutors, and we can remember that from Ether chapter 7, we see how a later king, Shiblam's brother, made it state policy to execute the prophets. So the prophets withdrew from among the people, but returned in the days of Coriantor to warn them that they would be destroyed if they did not repent and that others would be brought by the Lord to this chosen land. Yet they rejected all the words of the prophets. Their fate was sealed. Thus in Ether chapter 11, we see what we have seen before. Wars and contentions in the land, rejection of the prophets, and also many famines and pestilences insomuch that there was a great destruction such an one as never had been known upon the face of the earth. And still, there was no repentance, no spiritual soundness among the people. So since we have seen such patterns playing out before in the Book of Mormon narrative, we will not be surprised to discover, as the narrative slows in Ether chapters 12 through 15, that even though it may take many generations for this to play out, there is a final generation, and there is an ultimate time when the calamities that are foretold by prophets finally do come. The story of the Jaredites in the book of Ether certainly shows that pattern yet once again, and it provides Moroni with yet one more opportunity to put us as modern readers on notice. We too, collectively as a society, have the same tendency to reject the prophets that walk among us. We too live in a promised land, We enjoy great prosperity that has many similarities to the prosperity that was described in the previous chapter under the rule of Lib in Ether chapter 10. And so we too are approaching a time that has been foretold by prophets that will indeed be marked by calamity for those who choose not to heed their counsel. Thus, yet one more time, as we come to the end of Ether chapter 11 and finish unpacking this genealogy that was given to us at the beginning of this book, we as modern readers are motivated to repent and turn to the Lord with full purpose of heart, coming to him with a broken heart and a contrite spirit and feeling deep gratitude for the way in which this record has come into our hands today. Well, before reading this chapter, let's quickly look at its structure. It's composed of 23 verses, and in the first section of Ether chapter 11, verses 1 through 3, we can see that the story of Calm continues. We are introduced to Calm at the end of the previous chapter, and there there was no overt expression that Calm ruled in righteousness, but we could see that he opposed the secret combinations that were cropping up in the land. Here, however, as the story of Calm ends, we will find that he did rule in righteousness will be shown in these three verses that many prophets came during this period, and that's what we're told in the opening verse. And they prophesied of the great destruction that these people would experience, except they should repent. We learn then that Calm protected these prophets, and that's refreshing for us to see. Uh, King Shul did the same at the end of Ether chapter 7. In verses 4 through 8, we'll learn about Shiblam. He is the son of Calm who succeeds him. But under Shiblam's rule, his brother creates rebellion and war. And there is a great calamity, is the term that's used here, of wickedness in the land. And there's unprecedented famine, and this does cause the people to repent. Now, of course, we've just read of unprecedented famine at the end of Ether chapter 9. A famine, of course, that included the intervention of poisonous serpents. It's hard to imagine anything worse than that, but here, in verse 6, we'll find that there was a great calamity in all the land, and it will later say in this verse that there was a great destruction among the people, such an one as never had been upon the face of the earth. 
So all of this seems to be happening while Kam's successor, Shiblam, is in captivity. Uh, and ultimately we find in verse 9 that Shiblam is slain. And his son, Seth, uh, reigns in captivity as well. Then in verse 10, we'll read about Shiblam's grandson, or Kam's great-grandson. This is Aha, the son of Seth. He obtains the kingdom. So while his father Seth rules in captivity, Aha obtains the kingdom once again. However, we discover that he rules, unlike his great-grandfather Kam, who ruled in righteousness, Aha rules in iniquity and bloodshed. Then we will read in verses 11 through 14 that Etham, who is a descendant of Aha, obtains the kingdom. He, too, rules in wickedness. Uh, during this time as well, in verses 11 through 14, we read again of prophets who came among the people. Now, this was the scene in the opening verses as well, and we found that Kam had a favorable relationship with these prophets. However, this time, these prophets are rejected by the people and apparently rejected by this wicked king because we read that they mourn and ultimately withdraw from among the people. And that, of course, for us is a very foreboding sign. In the end of verse 14, extending through verse 18, we'll then read of Moron, the son of Etham. Now, he becomes king. He, too, is wicked, but he loses the kingdom. This will make Moron the last king in this succession that actually ruled uh, because his son, Coriantor, uh, will not rule. He'll be in captivity, and then Coriantor's son is Ether. And so that's how this entire succession will end. So again, at the end of verse 14, moving through verse 18, we learn about Moron. Uh, he reigns in wickedness, and he loses half of his kingdom to a rebellion. Then later, he will lose his whole kingdom. And so Moron ends his reign in captivity. Then in the final verses of this chapter, verses 19 through 23, we find that Coriantor uh, emerges, and he's the son of Moron. He too lives in captivity, and we read yet for a third time about the intervention of prophets. They predict the destruction of the people and the loss of the land. They'll be very specific, as we'll find in verse 21, uh, speaking of another people that will come to possess the land. This is a warning that Ether will later give to Coriantumr as well, uh, telling him very specifically that someone else, another group of people, will actually bury him. And of course, we saw the fulfillment of that in the book of Omni. But here, a generation before Coriantumr, we find these prophets giving essentially this same message to all the people, any who would listen. Whether Coriantor is righteous or not, we do not know. We know that his father Moron was not. Yet Coriantor has this very righteous son. Uh, we don't learn anything about Ether yet, uh, but he is mentioned then in the very final verse of this chapter, and it came to pass that Coriantor begat Ether. And so, as previously mentioned, the end of Ether chapter 11 brings us to the end of that genealogy that we read in Ether chapter 1, or we might even say that the end of Ether chapter 11 has brought us back to the beginning of that genealogy, since we've now come to Ether. So with that, let's return now to verse 1 for a reading remembering that at the end of the previous chapter, Kam was able to overcome the conditions of captivity that prevailed for his father and many generations before him. And in those final verses of Ether chapter 10, we learn that Kam opposed the secret combinations. Or in other words, as we read in verse 33, Kam opposed the robbers, 
that emerged in the land, the robbers that adopted the old plans and administered oaths after the manner of the ancients and sought again to destroy the kingdom. So as this chapter opens, we learn more about Kam and come to the end of his reign and discover that he had a special relationship with the prophets. So verse 1, And there came also in the days of Kam many prophets, and prophesied of the destruction of that great people, except they should repent and turn unto the Lord, and forsake their murders and their wickedness. So as we noticed in the flyover summary, there will be two more instances in this chapter, so a total of three, where the prophets come among the people and we see how they are received by the people. Here the people reject the prophets, and they do in the other two instances as well. So verse 2 will tell us, And it came to pass that the prophets were rejected by the people, and they fled unto Kam for protection, for the people sought to destroy them. So King Shul had a favorable uh, relationship with the prophets uh, in Ether chapter 7, and here King Kam has a favorable relationship with the prophets as well. He's willing to protect them. It seems like, and if I'm remembering correctly, Hezekiah had a similar relationship with the prophet Isaiah. Nephi once spoke of the relationship between prophets and the people in 2 Nephi chapter 25 verse 9, when he said, And as one generation hath been destroyed among the Jews because of iniquity, even so hath they been destroyed from generation to generation according to their iniquities. And never hath any of them been destroyed, save it were foretold them by the prophets of the Lord. So Nephi makes it clear that whenever destruction comes, and of course we will read about ultimate destruction in Ether chapter 15, just as we did in Mormon chapter 6, these instances are always preceded by the warnings of prophets. So as Kam brings these prophets into his protection, we read this in verse 3, And they, meaning the prophets, prophesied unto Kam many things, and he was blessed in all the remainder of his days. So that leaves no question as to Kam's righteousness. He opposed the robbers in the land at the end of the previous chapter, and here he protected the prophets, and we can see that he was blessed for the remainder of his life. What were the many things that were prophesied unto Kam? Well, we can't know for sure, but uh, without a doubt, it had to do with the destruction of the Jaredites, and uh, this will be alluded to later at the end of this chapter. And then, of course, again, Ether will tell Coriantumr very specifically that his people would be destroyed and that he would be buried by another people, which, of course, was the Mulekites. But we can also guess, and very safely, I'm sure, that if these people prophesied unto come many things, those prophecies were also messianic in nature. So now as we move into verse 4, we will read of Kam's son and successor named Shiblam. Verse 4, And he lived to be a good old age, meaning Kam, and he begat Shiblam, and Shiblam reigned in his stead. And the brother of Shiblam rebelled against him, and there began to be an exceedingly great war in all the land. So was Shiblam, Kam's successor, equally righteous to Kam? Well, we don't know for sure, but uh, if he did rule righteously, it was interrupted by his brother who rebelled against them. So a great war ensues. Verse 5, And it came to pass that the brother of Shiblam caused that all the prophets who prophesied of the destruction of the people should be put to death. So that's a familiar theme. These prophets were not telling the people, as Elder Holland once put it, that all was well and to go on and pick marigolds. They were prophesying of the destruction of this people, and the brother of Shiblam was not friendly towards that message. With respect to these three instances in the book of Ether chapter 11, where the prophets are rejected by the people, the Book of Mormon Institute manual writes this, 
The prophet Amos taught that one role of a prophet is to warn people of impending destruction. Ether chapter 11 clearly demonstrates the consequences of not heeding prophetic warnings. Consider what President Henry B. Eyring of the First Presidency said concerning the cost of rejecting prophetic counsel and the safety that comes from heeding prophets. He said, Looking for the path to safety in the counsel of prophets makes sense to those with strong faith. When a prophet speaks, those with little faith may think that they hear only a wise man giving good advice. Then, if his counsel seems comfortable and reasonable, squaring with what they want to do, they take it. If it does not, they consider it either faulty advice or they see their circumstances as justifying there being an exception to the counsel. Those without faith may think that they hear only men seeking to exert influence for some selfish motive. Every time in my life when I have chosen to delay following inspired counsel or decided that I was an exception, I came to know that I had put myself in harm's way. Every time that I have listened to the counsel of prophets, felt it confirmed in prayer, and then followed it, I have found that I have moved toward safety. Well, to use President Eyring's language then, these people were truly in harm's way. Or as verse 6 will say, And there was great calamity in all the land. For they had testified that a great curse should come upon the land, and also upon the people, and that there should be a great destruction among them, such an one as never had been upon the face of the earth, and their bones should become as heaps of earth upon the face of the land, except they should repent of their wickedness. Well, that, of course, is precisely the scene that Limhi's expedition came upon when they were searching from the land of Zarahemla. They came upon heaps of bones upon the earth. But, as verse 7 goes on to tell us, and they, meaning the people, hearkened not unto the voice of the Lord because of their wicked combinations. So again, secret combinations play a prominent part in this story. Wherefore, there began to be wars and contentions in all the land, and also many famines and pestilences, insomuch that there was a great destruction, such an one as had never been known upon the face of the earth. And all this came to pass in the days of Shiblam. Well, we just recently read of a famine that brought a very wicked people to repentance and to humility at the end of Ether chapter 9. So we wonder if this great famine will have the same effect. So verse 8 gives us the answer to that question. And the people began to repent of their iniquity. And inasmuch as they did, the Lord did have mercy on them. So I think I mentioned this recently, but we can certainly think of King Benjamin's statement that we rely upon the Lord so much that he preserves us from moment to moment and he lends us breath. So if something so fundamental as food is taken away from us, we as a people finally seem to come to a point where we decide to turn to God and to repent. So even under these circumstances where these people are so wicked, famine seems to be the one tool that can turn people to God. It's way better than, as Alma taught in Alma chapter 32, for us to become humble on our own volition uh, so that the Lord does not have to compel us to be humble. These people truly are being compelled to be humble. The Book of Mormon Institute manual speaks of this uh, idea about natural disasters leading to repentance. It says, We read that as a result of the wars, famines, pestilences, and destructions, the people began to repent of their iniquity. President Joseph F. Smith helped us understand that sometimes the Lord uses natural disasters to bring about repentance in the lives of his children. He says, The Latter-day Saints, though they themselves tremble because of their own wickedness and sins, believe that great judgments are coming upon the world because of iniquity. 
They firmly believe in the statements of the Holy Scriptures that calamities will befall the nations as signs of the coming of Christ to judgment. They believe that God rules in the fire, the earthquake, the tidal wave, the volcanic eruption, and the storm. Him they recognize as the master and ruler of nature and her laws, and freely acknowledge his hand in all things. We believe that his judgments are poured out to bring mankind to a sense of his power and his purposes, that they may repent of their sins and prepare themselves for the second coming of Christ to reign in righteousness upon the earth. We believe that these severe natural calamities are visited upon men by the Lord for the good of his children, to quicken their devotion to others and to bring out their better natures, that they may love and serve him. So now as we come to verse 9 and continue with this succession of kings, we see that Shiblam's life ends. And remember, Shiblam seems to be in captivity, although it's never expressly stated. His brother seems to be the one in power because he's the one that rejected the prophets. Verse 9 will tell us that Shiblam is slain and that he's succeeded by Seth. So, And it came to pass that Shiblam was slain, and Seth was brought into captivity and to dwell in captivity all his days. So this is certainly a pattern that we have seen before, and we now wonder if Seth's son, Ahah, will uh, remain in captivity or not. So verse 10 will answer that. And it came to pass that Ahah, his son, meaning the son of Seth, did obtain the kingdom. So Ahah regains the kingdom. And Ahah did reign over the people all his days, and he did do all manner of iniquity in his days, by which he did cause the shedding of much blood, and few were his days." So Ahah was wicked, and he did not have a long reign like his righteous predecessors. Verse 11, And Etham, being a descendant of Ahah, did obtain the kingdom, and he also did do that which was wicked in his days. So we're going to see the prophets appear again during this era of wickedness. And it came to pass that in the days of Etham there came many prophets, and prophesied again unto the people, yea, they did prophesy that the Lord would utterly destroy them from off the face of the earth, except they repented of their iniquities. So in the previous instance, the people did not respond well to the prophets, but they ultimately responded to famine. Now, we hope that a few generations later, these people are still in a state of humility and that this time they will accept the message of the prophets. Well, here is how they accept the prophets in verse 13. And it came to pass that the people hardened their hearts and would not hearken unto their words, and the prophets mourned and withdrew from among the people. So we've seen prophets withdraw from among the people at other times in Scripture. We can think of the way that Alma and Amulek left Ammonihah and the way in which Ammonihah was subsequently destroyed. We also have this great conference talk from Elder Jeffrey R. Holland called The Cost and Blessings of Discipleship. I alluded to it earlier, where he says the Jaredites would say with the corrupt Ahab, I hate the prophet Micah, for he never prophesied good unto me, but always prophesied evil. That kind of hate for a prophet's honesty cost Abinadi his life. As he said to King Noah, Because I have told you the truth, ye are angry with me. Because I have spoken the word of God, ye have judged me that I am mad. Or, we might add, provincial, patriarchal, bigoted, unkind, narrow, outmoded, and elderly. All things, of course, that can and have been said by modern-day prophets. So this is a dark time in this succession of Jaredite kings, and we read in verse 14, And it came to pass that Etham did execute judgment in wickedness all his days. And he, Etham, begat Moron. And it came to pass that Moron did reign in his stead, and Moron did that which was wicked before the Lord. So now we're several generations into this succession of wicked kings since the righteous king named Kam 
that we read of at the end of the previous chapter and the beginning of this one. So Moron is a wicked king. Now we're going to read more about Moron's rule in verses 15 through 18. And it came to pass that there arose a rebellion among the people because of that secret combination which was built up to get power and gain. And there arose a mighty man among them in iniquity and gave battle unto Moron. So the rejection of prophets that come among the people and the emergence and prevalence of secret combinations is this marker that we've seen over and over in the record. And here it is again during the reign of Moron. So there's one personality in particular that arises uh, through the auspices of a secret combination. He gives battle to Moron, and now as verse 15 continues, in which he did overthrow the half of the kingdom, and he did maintain the half of the kingdom for many years. So for a period of many years, you have the wicked king Moron on the one hand, and then you have this other wicked king on the other hand, who has taken this kingdom, who has taken half of the kingdom over from Moron. Then verse 16, and it came to pass that Moron did overthrow him and did obtain the kingdom again. So this conflict continued between them and this tug of war and Moron uh, regained the kingdom back. However, verse 17, and it came to pass that there arose another mighty man and he was a descendant of the brother of Jared. So in all the other instances, very interestingly, where we have read about kings who were brought into captivity, we have known that those captive kings have been descendants of Jared. What we have not known is who the competing line is a descendant of, but we have wondered, of course, if they were the descendants of the brother of Jared. Here it's made very explicit that in this instance at least, the king that was brought into captivity was brought into captivity by a descendant of the brother of Jared. This mighty character, as we're told in verse 18, uh, and it came to pass that he did overthrow Moron and obtain the kingdom Wherefore, Moron dwelt in captivity all the remainder of his days. So this is the last instance where a descendant of Jared, this kingly line that we have been following, this is the last instance where one of these kings is brought into captivity and there will not be opportunity moving into the future for his descendants to bring this line out of captivity. But instead, for the rest of the story, The Jaredite kingdom will be ruled by this other person who is a descendant of the brother of Jared. When we come to the end of this story and Ether appears on the stage, we'll turn the page into Ether chapter 12 and find that Ether is a contemporary to the king Coriantumr. So it's reasonable to assume that Coriantumr is a descendant, probably a grandson of this character that overthrew Moron, who was a descendant of the brother of Jared. That would suggest that Coriantumr is a direct descendant of the brother of Jared. Before we come to that final generation of Ether and Coriantumr, however, there is one more generation along this Jaredite succession, and we read of this character at the end of verse 18, and he begat Coriantor, meaning that King Moron, the now captive king, begat Coriantor. And it came to pass that Coriantor dwelt in captivity all his days. And that's really it. There will be no release for Coriantor's captivity or release for any of his posterity because now the Jaredite nation is racing towards annihilation. What we will read in this chapter for a third and final time is about the prophets who came among the people and we'll see if the people accepted them or rejected them. So verse 20, And in the days of Coriantor there also came many prophets, and prophesied of great and marvelous things, and cried repentance unto the people, 
and except they should repent, the Lord God would execute judgment against them to their utter destruction. That's a message that we are familiar with because, again, this is the third appearance of the prophets in this chapter. However, now this message becomes very specific in verse 21, and that the Lord God would send or bring forth another people to possess the land by his power after the manner by which he brought their fathers. Well, how true that is. He even brings them across the sea in the form of Lehi and Nephi. And of course, the people that actually have this encounter with Coriantumr later that we read about in the book of Omni, well, they are the Mulekites, and they too came across the sea. Just as an aside here, as we consider all of this, once again, we just have to marvel at the, the staggering narrative complexity that's found in the Book of Mormon. So even with this very specific and chilling message, how do the people receive the prophets? Well, verse 22 says, And they did reject all the words of the prophets because of their secret society and wicked abominations. So it seems that they are emboldened particularly to reject these prophets because of the secret combinations that were among them. And now for the final verse in Ether chapter 11, verse 23, And it came to pass that Coriantor begat Ether, and he died, having dwelt in captivity all his days. So judging by the way that this chapter ends, and by the way that we read verse 23, it would seem that Ether is yet one more king in this succession. Perhaps he will live out his days as a king in captivity, or perhaps he will overcome that captivity and regain the kingdom. That has been the pattern all the way through this narrative, this accelerated narrative that began at the end of Ether chapter 6 and took us in reverse order through this genealogy that was given to us at the beginning in Ether chapter 1. However, of course, we're going to turn the page and find that Ether's story is very different than that of his kingly predecessors. He instead fulfills the role of a prophet. So we will learn all about him, and we will learn a great deal about his contemporary, the king Coriantumr, who again was probably a descendant of the brother of Jared, through this great character, uh, not in terms of righteousness, but in terms of this mighty character that took over Moron's throne, Moron being the grandfather of Ether. And we read of that again in verse 18. So Ether chapter 12 will be a turn in the narrative. Uh, we're no longer talking about the succession of Jaredite kings because Ether, this successor, ends up being the final character in the story, and he never assumes the throne. Instead, he is a prophet of the people. Ether chapter 12 is also an interesting turn for us because it's a pause in the narrative, and we haven't seen that for a while as we moved through these chapters, but Moroni will pause in Ether chapter 12 and give us a great discourse on faith, and he will also tell us of an experience that he had in importuning the Lord with respect to his weakness in writing. He'll teach us about all of that and really so much more in Ether chapter 12, so we have that to look forward to. Then Ether chapter 13 will provide very interesting teachings on the New Jerusalem. And then Ether chapters 14 and 15 will bring us back to the storytelling narrative, which will not span any more generations. It will all stay within the generation of Ether and Coriantumr, and the Jaredites will come to their ultimate end at the end of Ether chapter 15. So all of that is yet to come. And for now, this brings us to the end of this great chapter, Ether chapter 11. Thank you for listening to Come Follow Me Deep Dive. 
This podcast has recently reached 100,000 listens and has been heard in many parts of the world. I love hearing from you. If you have the time to reach out to me, as many of you have, to share episodes on social media, and to write a review on iTunes, you will greatly help my efforts to get this podcast to even more listeners and help them in their experience with the Come Follow Me curriculum. I want to acknowledge the resources that have helped me prepare this and previous episodes of this podcast. The Book of Mormon Institute Manual, Kelly Ogden and Andrew Skinner's verse-by-verse commentary on the Book of Mormon, and the revised edition of Thomas Arvaleta's Book of Mormon Study Guide have provided me with rich and insightful commentary. Introductions, chapter analyses, and sectional divisions are my own. Parallel passages of scripture, as well as general conference addresses that come to mind, also play a prominent role in this podcast, as do my own thoughts and writings. For them, and any errors that you find in them, I, of course, am solely responsible. I hope that this podcast has had the effect of drawing you to the scriptural text, a text that is endlessly rich with detail and generously adorned with truths that help us navigate through our own exile story and mortality. I have found, and hope that you have too, that carefully studying the Word, particularly in the Book of Mormon, has the inevitable benefit of drawing us closer to its author, Jesus the Christ. I offer my witness that His attention is fixed upon us. He delights to bless us and to honor our efforts to come to know Him better. So, have a wonderful day, keep in touch, and thank you for listening.